This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's a great privilege for me to be sitting here in the office of my dear friend, in fact, one of my closest friends, Dr. Kenneth Brownell, in his office at East London Tabernacle. How long have you been at uh, ELT here, Ken? I think it's about 33 years now. 33 years, yes. Your accent suggests you're from further afield. Uh, yes, that's right. I, 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 I'm from the United States originally. Uh -huh. I was born there um, many years ago. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was born in Boston. So, so, so if you're from Boston, you don't say car, you say car. Well, my father actually has that sort of accent. I, I never had. I suppose my generation, your accents were getting more homogenized, you know, through TV and stuff like that. So I didn't have as pronounced a Boston accent as my father does. Or people remember Jack Kennedy, you know, talking about Cuba and things like that. <laughs> Climate in Boston similar to Britain? No. Because on the coast, it's not... It can be a bit milder than when you go go inland, but winters can still be pretty severe. So usually, usually winters are quite cold, lots of snow, at least for parts of the winter. Very pronounced seasons, so winter, spring, summers, which can be very hot and humid. Mm -hmm. And then autumns, which are in New England, are very beautiful and beautiful temperature and mm -hmm. lots of color and pretty late, late September, October, mm -hmm. uh, very yeah, beautiful. So yeah. that's quite nice. And um, yeah, New England's very, I mean, it was, uh, after the Puritans arrived in the 1620s, 30s, 40s, it became quite, probably landscape-wise, not unlike uh, Britain, uh, with small farms over hills and all sorts of things. But uh, farming sort of dried up, so it's been reforested. So usually the parts where I was living, the, uh, there's, there's lots of forest, and so in the, you have lots of trees, and in the autumn, beautiful colours. And of course, that's yeah. the countryside through which... Jonathan Edwards would walk enraptured. Yeah. So did you study in, in Boston? Where did you go to? How did you? I, I went to the Stony Brook School, which is on Long Island. And uh, certainly the chaplain, and the, he, was, he taught Bible and English as well, it was a guy called Peter Hale, had a big influence in my life. He actually was, he was British, gone to Oxford within the same year as Elizabeth Catherwood, and he ran in the, in the same race as Roger Bannister. Um, yeah, so he, 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 was, he was the chaplain of the school, having come to the United States um, when... Uh, the equivalent to UCCF for InterVarsity was set up. He was one of the pioneer sort of student ministry people. You know, and he had a big influence on me. Yeah, so I, I spent my, what Americans call high school years at Stonebrook School. Mm -hmm. Then in, graduated from there in 1972 and then went to Harvard uh, University, which meant going back to Boston. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, spent four years there. Reading what subject? Uh, I majored in history. Again, Americans call it majoring, not reading, majoring in history. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, I had a great, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I remember being at this church I went to the first year was Park Street Church, a very famous church in the United States where Harold Ockengay was. The, and I went to different churches during the time. I, I, one that I went to, um, I quite enjoyed going to, was a little Reformed Presbyterian church. It was a psalm singing, conservative psalm singing Presbyterian church. Uh, and I remember some of the older members very... And these really godly older people and this you know, very faithful preaching. Nothing terribly exciting, you know, but you know, just good faithful preaching. That, it was very difficult at the time to really find good expository preaching uh, around Boston. Yeah, mm. Mm. yeah so, so you're, from, you're from a brethren family, you were saying originally. Yeah, so my, my family uh, were brethren. My father's family originally from Canada. They were my grandfather. And... Um, it was, it was through my parents I came to faith. I remember very clearly when I was seven, my father sitting down to me and, and telling me very, with my mother uh, very clearly 
what the gospel was about. And I was, I, uh, that night, I was I, I, I shaken by it all. And, you know, just, I, I, I mean, they were dispensationalists. Or my father, very kind of, <laughs> he was very much this idea, you know, the rapture happened, I would be left behind. You know, I, I, I ter terrified of this thought. Uh, actually, I'm not a dispensationalist myself, so that's, you know, but, but in God's goodness, he used that, I think, to sort of um, make me realize if I, if Jesus came back, I, I, I would not be saved. And I very clearly remember uh, repenting and giving my life to Christ at, when I was, when I was seven. So it's through the witness of my parents mm -hmm. I, I came to, came to uh, faith, yeah. And now, will it have been at that time or before or after that you had a visitor from Scotland? <laughs> well, it was roughly about that time, but we don't remember it. But the, uh, yeah, the, the, what you're alluding to, Ben, yeah. <laughs> is my w wife. Uh, yeah, so when we were both seven, so it would be when I was just 10 years converted, um, Alison, my wife, uh, her father had a, a year's um, fellowship at... Harvard Medical School. He came over and brought his family over, and their brethren too, and um, they came to the same brethren assembly as my parents. And um, and so we did technically meet when we were both seven, but we can neither of us remember this. Uh, <laughs> then, you, having studied history, you came to Scotland. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I not, you know, many people were finishing university, not quite sure what you want to do. So, um, I, I, I thought I would do some more study. And I investigated a bit. I, I, I did my dissertation um, my last year on William Gladstone and his relationship with nonconformist in Britain. That was my my, th my thesis. So um, the professor at St Andrews was sort of one of the experts in this area of nineteenth-century political sort of history. So I um, decided to come to Britain. So I did. We, uh, a group of friends from Harvard. We sailed on the SS Stefan Batore. If we had the money, we could have gone on the QE2, but not having the money, we went on the flagship of the Polish-American line, which sailed from Montreal, and took about a week to get across the Atlantic through heaving seas. And uh, it was, but it was good fun. But it was a bit of a creaky sort of ship. Oh gosh! <laughs> what initially was going to it was I, I registered to do an MLit. It turned into a PhD, and I eventually did a PhD on the, the same subject. And then you came to London, and uh, you've been serving here. Faithfully in this uh, in, in East London for decades, uh, this yeah. ELT Baptist Church. But also, as well as being the pastor here and uh, working in the FIEC group of churches, you have been teaching church history at London Seminary, previously yeah. known as London Theological Seminary. Yeah. This city is a city heaving and bursting with awesome stories of yeah. gospel fruitfulness. Who have been people who have inspired and encouraged you made a difference to you historically I've always been interested fascinating figure of augustine mm. i mean i think he's such a massive figure it's almost impossible to hear anyone to get a head around he's so complex and as bb warfield has said the reformation was the triumph of warfield's doctrine of grace over his, the, uh, the doctrine of the church yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and you have that sort of tension in, in there and yet there's so much good stuff and I, I was doing a thing a few years ago about what I call evangelistic catechizing it was an article I wrote because I was fascinated by why all these courses developing like Alpha and uh, Christianity Explained and so on and uh, and really those are a form of catechizing evangelistic catechizing it's a structured way of teaching the faith to people though in a mm. way that's culturally appropriate at our time so I was looking into, uh, into this and I came across a little booklet uh, Augustine wrote 
in which he just wrote this little booklet up about, I think it's called Teaching the Christian Faith, in which he, a, a deacon of the church in Carthage wrote to him and said, the bishop has asked me to teach this pagan Christian faith, but what do I do? I don't know what to do. And so Augustine wrote back, well, this is what I do. He said, I, make, I invite the person in and get him to sit in a comfortable chair. And, um, and then we begin to just work through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I tell him the story of, of salvation. And, uh, and, and this and again so he explained all this and I said here's this sort of sort of little handbook on on how to instruct a non-christian in the faith and <clears throat> so I developed that and I just found Augustine such a fascinating character some of his sermons you know he just the way he he preached and you know he's he, he, very biblical the way he, he preached and but I think the wonderful thing I found in some of the things I read was just people would interrupt him in the middle of sermons but what about this or something like this and he'd stop and answer the question wow. so it wasn't just a straight monologue but it was quite interactive in the way he was dealing with things and, mm. and I, so i find him quite a quite interesting but then uh, you know among the reformers you know i love reading luther he sparks ideas i think calvin i, I just love going back to the expositions of scripture still is fresh and mm. usable today you know mm. into a faithful scripture and but also his modeling of the church but he had his downsides as well being a baptist i don't totally agree with some things but his big priorities i really did in terms of faithfully preaching the word and mm focus on godliness and seeking to nurture that godliness in, in, in people and so on yeah mm -hmm. so um kelvin um and you've written the book i hear yeah i did a little Traveling book in the with calvin. yeah Cal kelvin yeah i did that yeah it's just the fresh the freshness the vitality of the gospel you really said you know it was so fresh in that generation and kelvin grasping it the great puritan i mean john owen's the one i probably liked reading and gone back to the most particularly he's more the more spiritual works are really you know, oh, communion, communion with god and extraordinary uh, and dwelling sin and mortification of sin and so on uh, you know great and um mm. uh, and just buried along the road from here yes yeah in uh, bunhill fields mm, yeah, incredible, yeah, isn't it? yeah yeah and in fact just down the road i mean i happen to be doing a series on ezekiel right now and uh, one of the uh, great puritan commentaries that spurgeon really liked was uh, william greenhill's commentary and he was the one of the pastors at, at during the late 1640s, 1650s at St. Dunstan's in Stepney oh, really? with Jeremiah Burroughs. And uh, yeah, he was called, the, Burroughs was the morning star of Stepney and uh, Greenhill was the evening star because he preached at the afternoon service. Uh, Bur Burroughs was at seven o'clock in the morning. And, um, much later, um, let's say 19th century, I like, I mean, there's John Newton, I love you know, his mm. letters. Ch William Chalmers, I don't know William Chalmers, uh, uh, Thomas. Thomas Chalmers is a great hero of mine in the 19th century. He was a great example also of urban ministry. He, he pioneered a lot of urban ministry, which bore fruit in London in that uh, James Naismith, who was the uh, founder of the London City Mission, was really nurtured by Chalmers in Glasgow. He comes down and tries to bring Chalmers' ideas of how you evangelize a city to London. So Chalmers, I think, is great. Now you teach uh, church history at uh, London Seminary and have done for some time. What is the ambition of someone who teaches church history? History in general, uh, it's not just an antiquarian thing. You happen to be interested in the Middle Ages or some bit. But it's, it's again, wisdom. You, you, you learn from past generations, from the, both the bad and the good, what's happened, um, of both the people and movements and institutions, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, it, because history is very complex. So when it comes to church history, you're obviously, obviously dealing with the core things of what God has done to advance his kingdom. And of course, that's mixed up because human beings are sinful, nothing that are pure, and institutions get corrupted. And But out of all that, 
you have men and women of God who have trusted him and lived by faith. You know, most of church history, we don't know most of who, who, who the people are, but you know, I think that's important to see that very ordinary people have been used by God. I mean, we tend to see the people whose heads are above everybody else, but all, they just are representative, really, of, of God's people all through the ages. So I think we just gain wisdom from that. So then we can apply that to our own situation mm. today, learning again from people's mistakes, but also then being inspired by their examples, you know, mm. that, you know, what people have done and sometimes the most sacrificial sort of ways. Or sometimes, you know, I, I find great encouragement just from people who have slogged on, <laughs> done patiently, carried on their ministries or their, their lives in the midst of whatever circumstances they've been found in at any given point in history. Mm. And God has used that as part of the great tapestry that God's mm. woven uh, uh, through the, through history and I mean teaching church history. I, I, my I, my focus uh, at the seminary is on the, the modern church history, nineteenth and twentieth century. Mm -hmm. And I think the students, when you begin, uh, sort of think mm, this is going to be a bit more of a slight letdown because we've had all the great stuff already. You know, we have the Reformation and the Great Awakening, <laughs> all these sort of things. Nineteenth century, yeah, there were some things. There's Spurgeon, obviously. There's the great eighteen fifty eight to fifty nine revival. Uh, there were the earlier revivals in the 1790 to about 1830, which was one of the massive expansion of Christianity in Britain. So I try to show all that sort of thing, the beginning of the missionary movements. You have all that. But of course, among Protestant churches, by the end of the century, you're coming, it's all starting to be in, it massively undermined by liberal theology mm. and evangelicalism's under pressure. In the 20th century, you have the modernist fundamentalist controversy, and then evangelicals becoming this sort of more besieged group of people. And liberalism seems to dominate everything in the main institutional denominations and so on. So that all the people, mm, that's a bit of a <laughs> come down. But there's so much you can learn from that, I right. think, you know, and how we deal with our situation today. And I think where we are now, we have to look back. So, you know, so much of what we know of Christianity today, we really owe to what happened in the 19th century. The revivals, um, you know, people like D.L. Moody, pioneering the sort of ministries that Billy Graham and others have had around the world, the beginning of the expansion, massive expansion, global expansion of evangelical Christianity through the British Empire and other, other means, through missions that we live with today, whereas global Christianity, pretty in the third world, developing world, is exploding as we sort of <laughs> decline in many ways in, this, in Europe. Uh, but uh, all that comes from the 19th century. So I, th I think it's quite an exciting story to, to, to learn from. Mm. Uh, but, you know, as I say, you go back and learn from people, you know, where people went up dead ends, made mistakes, uh, didn't get things right. But also, people were doing things that we can learn very positively from and, yes. and really seek to imitate today. It is a simple fact of my own history that as I sit here week by week and pray with you, yeah. the people who have caught your eye in the congregation, the people for whom we pray frequently, are people who no one else might see. Yeah, yeah. And they are the people who catch the eye of the shepherd yeah. of this congregation who says, there's one. Yeah. He seems to be on the edge. Yeah. And we've had <laughs> wonderful... I remember you telling me stories of how you just got to this wonderful gospel golden point in your sermon and this particular fellow walked out for a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then you saw him come back in. Yeah. And so you just went back over it again <laughs> in the sermon. It's just wonderful. Because... This is an illustration. Someone who is interested in the history of what God has done, yeah. as you say, they're not just interested in, in medieval, you know, plagues and dress yeah, yeah. sense and so on. They're interested in how God has done things and is yeah. doing things and yeah, so on. Yeah. And that's why I think, like in the 20th century, when I come to that, and it's a lot of, if you read a book on 20th century church history, they'll be talking about 
you know, all the stuff going on in the Church of England or, you know, the ecumenical movements. In many ways, all of that is totally irrelevant to the kingdom. You know, it, it's formerly church history, but what's really happening, <laughs> you're looking at where's their gospel life uh, under that. And usually it's little groups outside and so on. I mean, if you look at, for example, I always find it interesting, you look in the index of a, of, a, of a book on British church history, and if you look at the names, either Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott, there's barely a mention of either, <laughs> and yet they were probably the two most significant people in the twentieth, in much of, in the twentieth century. You know, um, and they were the ones God was using, not the guys who were the, the archbishops and the yes. and the the big headline leaders. Um, yes. It's it's it was God using them, and then behind them, all sorts of guys just working faithfully away in some various chapels yeah. and churches and parishes around the country. Yeah, it's like in the middle of Westminster. When I take our Westminster walk, mm. one walks between the Methodist Central Hall and Westminster Abbey, and you see the, the competitive challenge that the Methodists yeah. wanted to make against yeah. the Abbey. But now as you go between those two great yeah. buildings, you say, well, yeah. on anyway. Sunday, no one goes really to either of the yeah. very few people go to them. Meanwhile, there are little groups meeting in hired school halls all yeah. around London. And it reminds you of that thing it says, is it, is it in numbers, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro looking for someone whose heart is fully for him that he might endorse them? Yeah, yeah. exact terms. But it's London's history frequently brings up these characters mm -hmm. who, yeah, like the, you're saying the morning and the evening star of Stepney. And yet also the, just the constancy of there are little oases yeah. of, um, <laughs> of faithful gospel ministers preaching quietly yeah, yeah, yeah. and keeping the Bible uh, central yeah so um to what are you up presently what's new for you uh, at the moment what are you up to this is my last year of pastoral ministry at the alt i'm right now doing a series uh, based on ezekiel 36 called the the gospel for exiles uh, i'm involved with you i'm involved with you in christian heritage uh, london and uh, that's good i mean that's been on bit in suspension a little bit for the last few months but we're hoping mm. to get that Going. And when yeah, you, do the, you, you do a, a, a unique tour, uh, actually indoors in London, which is quite useful to go indoors. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's sort of very politically incorrect right now to be doing the, the impact. It's at the Victoria and Albert Museum. You can basically start with Rome and work your way through to Spurgeon. <laughs> so the impact of Christianity and Western civilization and just the way the gospel has had, had this big transforming effect. Excellent. You've been serving in this city for all these years. You've held to Bible, gospel-glorifying uh, message. What would your advice be to people listening to this? I, I, I think the core thing, you know, you know, and we, you know, we all look at our own hearts and see how inadequate we are at this, but I think it's to maintain uh, close communion with God and Christ and Lord Jesus Christ. I think that, I think that core to that is a... Make sure you have your devotional time. I mean, it's so, I mean, to my mind, it's a, the core thing. If I don't make sure I have an adequate, I, I don't like the term like quiet time, but I've heard the older term devotions, uh, where you, um, and it, it's not just reading the Bible and then praying through a list, but actually seeking to commune with God. I think that's important. I, it's really helped by, uh, I think it's George Mueller via John Piper, I think something I read once about, Mueller points out how, he used to sort of read the Bible and then try to pray, or he, you know, and it just didn't work. And then he, he said, then he started reading the Bible until he got his soul into a happy state. And that, oh, you know, what he meant, I think he was beginning to commune with God through whatever text. Well, even it meant, sometimes you just start reading, and it would happen. Sometimes you have to read long, 
And then out of that would come his praying. He would eventually move on to intercessory prayer. So might you find yourself reading a few chapters? Well, I, 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 all my, almost ever since, uh, since I learned at St. Andrews, there I discovered Robert Murray Machane's Bible reading calendar. And I, that's really what I've used to use. And I, I, every morning I would just go through the whole thing, the four chapters for the day. But I would try to do it in such a way as not, as to make sure you're turning it into prayer. That would, and I don't use alongside it the Valley of Vision book to get myself. That's the first thing I would do. Just recently I've discovered an app of the Psalms of the Free Church of Scotland, which uh, you can put all the metrical Psalms, which are great. You can just sort of sing them. Uh, the Psalms, you sing the Psalms, which is oh, really, that's a great yeah. devotional help too. Nothing I think is just be patient. I just, I think we have to just, uh, in fact, I, I have it in mind to write a little book on patience. But, you know, it's just really just trusting in the sovereignty of God and, and being patient and letting God do his thing in his time. But it's hard for us. My kids say, Dad, you're about the last person to write a book on patience. But that's probably why I should write a book on patience. <laughs> you have to, I think you have to be patient with yourself. You have to be patient with God because his time is not your time. You have to be patient with people. The pastors need to keep focused on the central thing and not get distracted from them. That's, you know, the, basically, I mean, I have a little, if I had a little philosophy of ministry, it would be the prayerful preaching of God's word in a loving fellowship of God's people. And the world outside may not, you know, in terms of apologetic stuff, they don't understand a lot of stuff you're saying, but they can understand a loving community of people. And that, with prayerful preaching in its heart, I think is probably the most powerful thing we have. So I, I think pastors need to really keep their focus on that. So you can do lots of other stuff. Our church does lots of stuff in the community, but I don't myself get directly involved in that because I think it would be distracting if I was sort of running a homeless shelter or a youth club doing on the some estate or something. Um, uh, you know, I need to focus, make sure I prepare and preach and prayerfully and shepherd the flock. That's my core, keep mm -hmm. the core thing and not, not, and I think it's always a temptation to pastors get, you know, some would be the more, go in a more academic direction, some would be more, you know, activists doing lots of stuff or, but you have to be careful not to, yeah. Mm. Yeah, keep reading. I think um, have a life partner of, not your, your wife, but your, <laughs> your <laughs> reading, <laughs> you know, picks up a couple of theologians you sort of go back to all the time or, mm. you know, not, not scatter it too much because you can mm. go deep and then you can, but also read why theology, but also more cultural things. It's, it's important to keep connected with going on in the culture and yes. uh, stuff like that. I think big thing, just make sure the gospel is always central. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I tried in this church that in the end, everything, how we, not just the preaching, but the relationships in the church are shaped by the gospel. You know, I think Paul says in Colossians, let the peace of Christ dwell among you. He's not just talking, oh, well, let's have a nice sense of, internal sense of peace. I think he's meaning, let the gospel of peace, this gospel of reconciliation, um, govern the way you relate to each other as mm. Christians. And so if there are disagreements in the church, make sure you're, going, you're forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. And, and you know, I do things wrong, even apologizing, stuff. making sure that we're, we're, our relationships are shaped by the gospel, not by, mm. uh, you know, by other things. So I, my definition of godliness is devotion to God actively expressed in a good life empowered by the gospel and that's that's really what it, i mean calvin at the beginning of his institute says you know tells francis the first what he's doing is really just to promote godliness piety call it piety so he wants to and i think it's what i think what every pastor is doing paul says that at the beginning of titus uh, the, the, um, 
his, he talks about his ministry in terms of the faith of God's elect and the truth that leads to godliness. And he basically wants godly people. So that's what we're trying to do, have people who are devoted to God and actively expressing that in the way they live, but empowered by the gospel, letting the gospel really animate and motivate that. And I think that's really, keeps keep that focus, I think. And again, not other things like social transformation. And <laughs> I think really get us away from that, that can happen, but it's not the core thing. I think that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a flower. Yeah. The flowering yeah. of a root. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. Well, it's been fantastic to have this time with you. Thank you very much. Right. Now we've done the introduction. Now <laughs> 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 the superlateranism. <laughs> yeah, there we go. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.